Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. And would you open your Bibles to two places today? Hebrews chapter 2 and Psalm 22. Hebrews chapter 2 and Psalm 22. As we finish up our chapter here in in, uh, the second chapter of Hebrews, in a Bible study that I've entitled, We Are Set Free by Jesus. There's a freedom available to us in Jesus that is ours by faith that we no longer have to live, as we even sang today, in bondage, that we are no longer needing to live in fear, but rather in faith in the Lord. Now, we know it's not hard to see today that man is not exercising spiritual dominion over creation. Now, the word dominion, don't let it scare you. It literally means authority. Man isn't living in absolute authority over creation today. No, all you need to do is look at the animal kingdom and look at the news, you know, the sea creatures, every area of creation. Man is not in dominion. Truth be told, man has a hard time controlling himself sometimes, let alone creation. Remember in verse 8, as we left off last time, in verse 8 it says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that's not put under him. And then he says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. And we learned why. Originally in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, they were given absolute complete dominion. And they forfeited that through sin. And we inherited and cooperated with that forfeiture by our own sin. And so today, the devil... Satan himself has dominion over so much in this present world. And then in the discouragement, though, the author says in verse 9, but we see Jesus. And that's the key, isn't it? We see Jesus, God's answer to men's problems, God's answer to humanity's issues. Not problems as much as it is one problem, the problem of sin which leads to separation, and the wages of that sin is always death. Jesus Christ came in human flesh, we learn, to deal with the greatest need of man, the forgiveness of sins. He became a man so that he would suffer and die. Notice in verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Away with that teaching today that says that Jesus Christ only died for a small group of people and predest it's the idea of predestination. He only predestined some people for salvation and he he predestined with no opportunity all the rest to hell. That's simply not in the Bible. Predestination is a doctrine that God knows in advance what he's going to do, but this idea that he predestined people to go to hell with no chance, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he tasted death for who? Everyone. 
It's potentially for everyone. Oh, it's true. Verse 10, not everyone believes. For it's fitting for him whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Not every, but many. Which is also the doctrine of universalism, which is not from the Lord. Universalism that everybody, doesn't matter how, what you believe and doesn't matter what you do in life, everybody's going to make it. Not true. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Everyone's not going to make it, unfortunately, by their own choice. God is not going to be held responsible for your choices. You and I are personally responsible for the choices that we make. Notice, he brings many sons to glory, verse 10, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, I want you to mark a couple words. Back in verse 9, I want you to circle the word taste and write next to it cupbearer because it comes to us and, it, and begins to bring to mind in, uh, the cupbearer because in ancient days, the cupbearer would be the first one to take a full taste of whatever the king would eat or drink. Not a little sip, not a little crumb, but the cupbearer. Now, the, one of the most famous cupbearers that we learn of in the Bible, his name was Nehemiah. Nehemiah, don't think of cupbearer as just simply a taster, but rather he was often one of the, if not the most trusted man in all of the kingdom. Because his responsibility would be to take anything that was going to be eaten or drank by the king and take a full, complete taste of it, a full, complete bite or a full, complete portion of what was then going to be given. And so he would taste it and he would drink and everyone would watch. And what were they watching for? Well, whether he would drop dead if somebody wanted to go after the king. But notice this word is used to, to exemplify what Jesus Christ did for you and me. He fully tasted death for you and for me. He took it completely. He tasted it, received it in its fullness for you and me first so that as we look to him, he's the source of life, peace, and rest. So many are restless today. You might even walked in here today restless of all the responsibilities you have in your life. You're running to and fro with all your kids, all your house responsibilities. You have work. You have ailing parents. You've got car issues and house issues, and you're so restless. It's in those times as well that we need to see Jesus and remember what he's done for us and receive it by faith and trust him. He said, if you're weary today and you're carrying around these heavy weights and burdens, come unto me, Jesus said, and I'll give you rest, like a true settled peace. We often interpret that as if every issue is going to be solved in our life, but that's not it at all. It's not that every issue is going to go away because in this world, you what? will have trials, you have troubles. But yet God will give you and I the strength to persevere and to make it through in the moment and, and to do so in such a way where there's true rest and trust that God, I was just reminded today as I was doing my devos early this morning, that God indeed will work all things together. He is working 
all things together for the good. There isn't one radical, crazy thing that hasn't first passed from God, through God, to you, that also he's working together. And in order for him to work together things, some things just have to be, they just have to be not well-liked or well-received. We see Jesus. He's the answer. He tasted death for you. How much more will he go before you and me? Notice, I want you to mark in verse 10 now the word author, because in some translations, this Greek word is translated captain. Jesus now becomes our captain in the stormy seas of life. When we don't know which direction to go, we look to the captain. It literally means, you can circle it, it literally means first above all others. It's used again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when we get there. It's translated author there as well. And also in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, it's translated prince. Now, our captain, it says, needed to be made perfect. He needed to be made perfect. And so people will come to and go, wait a minute, I thought Jesus Christ was perfect. Listen, Jesus was and is, and still to this moment, is perfect. But the fact that he suffered like a human, like us, makes him the perfect captain for us. He can relate to you. He's not some distant deity that was invented in the mind of man, but he is God the creator, as we've learned, greater than the angels, who can relate to you. You know, jot it down in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll paraphrase for you. It says that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, so that we might be able then to comfort others in all that they're going through. And haven't you found it to be true in the issues of your life, the things that you've come through, the things that you've persevered, that God seems to bring to you people that have a similar story, a similar background. So you wrestle with X, Y, and Z, and then all of a sudden you're surrounded with people that are currently struggling with X, Y, and Z. And why is it that they come to you? But that there is an understanding, there is a camaraderie, there is an agreement, or you might even use the phrase, I know how you feel because you've experienced the same thing. And, and it's great to be used in that way. But let me just say, experience will not solve anyone's problems. Only Jesus Christ and his wisdom will solve the issues that you're in. And so you might be seeking out, you know, that you might be going through a particular thing and you're like, you know, you call the office and you say, I, I want to uh, I- I talk to somebody that's gone through this. And then we kind of look at who's in the office that day. Well, you know, no, there's nobody here that's ever gone through that. But if you just come in, they'll talk to you. The pastor will minister. You know, you don't understand. I've got, you know, for example, maybe uh, it's, an, it's, a, it's a past of addiction like you. And so you call the office. I got to speak to Ed. I got to speak to Pastor Ed. Because he went through exactly what I went through. Or my son's going through what he did. And I got to speak to him. And they're like, well, Pastor Ed's not in today. Uh, let me give it to another pastor. No, no, no. He's experienced exactly what. Listen, listen. My experience is not your solution. It might help, it might not help. Only the Word of God is going to help the situation in your life. Now, my experience may or may not be able to help me relate, but experience doesn't solve any problem. As a matter of fact, sometimes our experiences get in the way of giving good counsel because you get so caught up in the situation and you begin to give your opinion instead of what God's Word says. And every single pastor, every single lay leader, every single man, woman here that is filled with the Holy Spirit 
should be able to open up the Bible with you and pray with you so that what? You get to the point where you see Jesus. That's the key. Not, not just like physically seeing him, but really understand what the Bible says as he revealed himself in your life and what the solution is. Don't allow, just because there's a connection with others, experience to think that's going to be your solution. It's not. But superseding our own experience, the Bible says that Jesus, because of what he tasted, he is able in complete fullness to be the captain of your life, to be the head of your life, to be the perfect Savior. And notice in verse 11, he says, for both he who sanctifies and those being sanctified are all one of which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praise to you. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, and that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I love this. The Bible says in verse 11 that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother and his sister. He's not ashamed of you. This is a humbling thought for a moment. Because I have to think about in my own life, and I would invite you to think with me, of how many times I've been ashamed of Jesus. How many times I've been ashamed to speak up. Or how about this? To think about how many times I've been overcome with my own shame, shame over my own sin where I've just been heaped on myself loads of condemnation because of my own failures. Or think about this, how many times I've believed the accusations of the devil, where he comes because the Bible says that the devil's the, accus the accuser of the brethren, and I just believe him, and I buy into his lies. But Jesus is not ashamed to call you. Yeah, you in your, imperfect, in your imperfect life, in your life fraught with failures, in your life filled with stumbling, he's not ashamed to call you or me his brother or sister. He's united to us, and we're united to him. It says in verse 11, we're all of one. There's a unity among us in the Spirit of God. And it's not because of any work or any effort that we've done, but fully because of his grace. And how does he prove it? He, he uses Psalm 22 in verse 12. He uses Psalm 22 to, to prove it. And he says, I'm going to declare your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the congregation, I'll sing praise to you. And that is applied now to that lack of shame in Jesus Christ. But I want to pull back for a second and really examine Psalm 22, because it's very encouraging. Would you go back to Psalm 22 and pick up in verse 22? Because we learn something here that's so encouraging to us that we can't miss it. Because I have to say, church attendance has become a very habitual, repetitive act on our part at times, where, you know, we just go to church, and it's for some, and maybe you go in through different seasons, and, and maybe you're listening in from afar right now, and you're not even here, and that's why you're not here, because it's just like, well, you know, it's the same thing. What are we going to do at church? What's going to happen at church? Well, we're pretty much going to do the same thing. 
We're going to pray. We're going to sing. Uh, you know, if we have a prayer, we're going to do a baby dedication, Brad. We might read a psalm. We're going to study the Bible. Then we're going to go home. That's pretty much what we do. And when you become so familiar with something, familiarity often breeds contempt. And we take for granted this gathering. But did you know that God has given us the gathering together like we are right now as a gift? We need this. We need to get out of what we're going through, what we're, you know, we need to get out of the house, we need to get out of routine, we need to get away from work, and we should, we must gather together with the saints. And one of the reasons is so that we'll sing together. Let me show you something. Psalm 22, verse 22. The psalmist says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. He's not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great congregation, and I will pay my vows before those who fear him. This time that we set aside for singing is so important. Even if you don't participate, just say, you know, you might be in that place where I don't sing or I don't sing very well or I don't like my voice. Whatever it might be, just being in the company of other people singing to Jesus will bless you and will encourage you. One of the reasons we come together now, we, we use the word worship and, and it has become kind of narrowed down uh, over the years where it just reflects the the time of singing. And I'm not opposed to that, I get it. But worship encompasses everything about your life. Everything about your life. You and I are either worshiping God or we're not worshiping God. Whether it's at work, whether it's driving, whether it's, you know, whatever it might be we're involved in, it's either an act of worship or it's not an act of worship unto God. The, the word worship just literally means ascribing respect or honor to someone or to something. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, oh, you know, that guy, he worships money. Or she worships her kids. Or he worships his career. And you know what's being said, that that's their primary purpose in life. That, that's what they're into. Before God even comes into the picture, you know, they are, when you're using that word, you're using it to describe the value they place on something over and above everything else. But in Hebrews chapter 2, Psalm 22, this phrase, I'm going to sing praise to you in the corporate worship times. Times like right now where we gather together to sing and to worship in song. You need to be together singing to Jesus. You need to learn to sing songs to Jesus. You need to learn to release yourself in song in this time of, you know, songs have been a part of worshiping God way back. I think probably in the Garden of Eden, the Bible doesn't really say this, but I bet you they were whistling a tune unto Jesus, unto the Father, enjoying sweet communal fellowship with God in the cool of the day, the Bible says. They were enjoying some kind of worship of God, some type of relationship with Him so that they could even raise their kids. We're not told how this happened, but they could even raise their kids to learn how to worship properly in their sacrifices and how not to. That's what happened with Cain and Abel. 
And so some kind of instruction, some kind of worship was happening even in the times of Adam and Eve and with their kids. When we come together to worship God as a church, our minds are united on and in Jesus Christ. The shame of our guilt and sin is taken away by the blood of Jesus. He is the focus. He is the object of our worship. I know over the years, the, the worship styles in churches change. We've even seen change in our own churches. Worship styles change, and it's too bad that there is such a great emphasis today on art form than it is hard form. And I don't just mean from the leadership. I mean in your life as well, where worship and song has become some kind of spectator sport for the church where you sit back and you just kind of like, well, you know, honey, what'd you think of the worship today? Well, you know, I didn't like that song and they used that word and, you know, the lights were moving and, and I didn't like that. I, I think I'll give them a seven today. Oh, seven, yeah. You know, same thing happens more often with the preaching, you know. What'd you think of Ed today? I don't know, I'll give us a five. Well, you know, honey, at a four, we got to look for another church while well, we're still at five. And the, the real thing is, if that's you, if that's how you leave a gathering, you've really seriously missed the point. It's really, you've missed out on what God's given to you in any style, in any form. God hasn't, he doesn't want us to be so critical of everything all the time. He wants us, especially when it comes to, when we come together in any church at any time, to put our defenses down and sing. In worship, studying the Bible. When we come together for worship, God is on the stage, not man. And while those that lead us give us their best as an offering to the Lord, we're really worshiping and singing for an audience of one. It's really He's the one receiving our worship. And you know, it's also a biblical model for us that God has given us gifted men and women to lead us into his presence. Like there are some of you that are simply not gifted in music. That's just not your gifting. Nobody needs to tell you that. You know it. God has given you gifting other places. But in the church, God has anointed men and women. He's done that. Even in the Old Testament, there was a whole family. They would be their responsibility to lead the people in worship and song and dance and all kinds of wonderful things to express yourself in love. You know, worship is intended to be an emotional response to God. You know that, right? It's supposed to be an emotional response. You've had a hard week. You've had a hard day. You may even had a hard morning. But in those few moments when you gather together, whether it's 10 minutes, whether it's 20 minutes, whether it's 90 minutes, whatever you have in gathering together, God wants to take you out of this crazy, out-of-control world and remind you of the world to come. He wants you to know that that's, this is not all there is, that the problems and the pains that you have are not going to last forever, that he's faithful, that he's just. And, you know, sometimes you sing songs and they're just so expressive of the pain you're feeling, of the hope that you have. Or even today we sing a scripture song that just came right from the Bible. It's not God's heart for you to be so hypercritical all the time but rather for us to submit ourselves to him. And let me just say this. Country music's not going to get you there. 
Somebody texted the show this week and said, is it okay to listen to country music? I wasn't hosting the show, but if I was, I would have said, no. <laughs> but country music's not gonna get you there. Pop music's not gonna get you there. The music of this world's not gonna get you to the presence of God. That's my point. If you like country music, I feel bad for you, but that's fine. <laughs> that's your deal, not my deal. But the music of this world, the what, what the, what, what's popular, what's getting all the attention, what gets all the awards, it's not gonna get you to the presence of God. No, God gave you the church. He gave you this. He gave you this church, what church you might go to somewhere else. He gave you the body of Christ with gifted men and women. It's not about the, the, the talent or it's not about the art form of worship, it's about the heart. Not only of our leaders, but of us. It's our choice whether we enter in. You know, on occasion I'll hear in, in our worship times, they'll be singing, but then they'll be rejoicing. And you'll hear it at the same time. I don't know if you noticed that. You'll hear people singing and then someone just shouts out something of rejoicing. Or you'll hear singing and then, and then it's not. First of all, as a church, we've never been good at clapping. I just want you to know that. Ever, 18 years, we are rhythmless as a church, but Ian's done good to help us over the time. So, so just so you guys know, you, go, you might be sitting there, I'm brand new and this church can't clap. You're right, you're right, myself included. I just don't have any rhythm, but, but sometimes we get it right. But, but there'll be times where we're singing and then there's some rejoicing, some outburst of clapping somewhere. And you wonder, is that okay? Let me ask you this, is that okay? It's okay, express yourself. Give yourself to the Lord. This might be the only time besides your shower, the only time that you're just going to go for it. Let loose unto the Lord. Give yourself to him. That might be the release that God is looking for. It might be the bondage he wants to release. Now, I, I know uh, we, we try to say this, and I, I can't be the judge of it. I don't know, but I mean, we'll know it when we see it. But it's not like you don't want to draw attention to yourself. You know, so I use silly illustrations, right? You know, you don't want to run laps in the room. Don't do that. We will stop you. Because everybody's going to stop and go, look at that dude running laps. You see that guy running laps? So, you know, there's, there's got to be a line in your own heart where you just realize, you know what? I'm trying to get attention on myself. And, and I'm, we're not going to stand a judgment on that. But at the same time, you're just so timid and reserved when the Lord is bursting out from you. Go ahead. The Bible even speaks of making a joyful noise unto the Lord. And, and I, I don't know what it's been and maybe in our rational society or in our own rationalism that feelings and emotions have been so downplayed, but it's okay to express feelings and emotions unto the Lord. Now, we don't live by our feelings because we, you know, feelings lie to us, right? You know, we don't want to, we want to, we want to live by faith and we want to live by obedience. But to think that you can't express yourself, if there's ever a place you should practice expressing yourself, it's in the church. Remembering, remembering how good God is. I mean, you, you think of Jesus, he cried, he wept at the pain of grief and difficulty and unbelief. He felt compassion over people that were resisting him. I mean, Jesus was filled, the perfect man was filled with emotion. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we're, we're not so selfishly, you know, hypercritical. You know, one of the things I've done over the years, a habit that I've developed going back, you know, I've been saved 20-something years, how many years? 27 years now. 
and going way back even to the beginning is to help me in my personal worship, I purposely learn the songs so I don't need the words. I purposely learn the songs. And you're like, well, Ed, how, how can I do that if, if I don't know what songs we're singing and I don't know? Well, one of the things that I've done, one of the things I'm going to ask Ian to start doing, and we'll figure this out, but we'll start posting the songs that we sing so you can look them up on YouTube or Apple Music or Spotify, whatever you're using, so you can hear the songs. Like, you can listen to them regularly. I put a playlist together on my, and I just, I always put that playlist on of all the songs, and I'm adding a few, and you go, wait a minute, Ed, what if he doesn't give us the list? So I'll tell you a trick that I use is if there's a song I really like, whether I'm traveling or whether I'm here, I'll take a picture of one of the slides, one of the lyrics. It doesn't matter which one it is. I'll take a picture of it, and then when I go home, I'll put those lyrics into Google, and Google will tell me what song it is. And then I'll look it up, and I'll add it to my playlist, and I'll play it over and over again uh, so that I can learn it. So that when I'm here, I can close my eyes, and I can lift my hands with my, and generally I like closing my eyes personally because then I can just take that time and just kind of be, I, I, I like to imagine what heaven's going to be like or there might be something on my mind that I just need to leave before the Lord or I can lift my eye or I can bow down and I can just be focused on the Lord. And if I don't know the song and I'm still in one of those modes, I'll just close my eyes and I'll hum it with you guys or I'll listen to you. And I just want to be personally, my, my personal thing. See, the issue that I have when I walk in the door of the church, the issues that I have are not really what songs we're singing, whether there's lights or no lights, whether there's a band or no band. Those are not issues to me. I don't really care. Anywhere I go, everywhere I teach, all the conferences, all the churches I get to teach at, none of that stuff matters to me. I don't really care. They can have a million people on the stage or they could play a recording to lead in worship. It doesn't matter to me because I love God no matter what, so it doesn't matter. Uh, every church is at a different stage. You want to know what bothers me when I walk in? My own personal problems and my own personal issues, and maybe issues going on in the church, or my own failure, or my own sadness. That's what bothers me. That's what's heavy on my heart. So that, boom, when the first, well, actually it starts, you know, my worship starts even before I get on the building because I, my heart is already set to minister, to meet, to greet people, to pray for people. So I'm already in the mode. But man, when that, like today I was in the back, when the first, when the first time a sound, re, it's like the call to worship, it's time. And I usually make the joke, oh, they're starting without me. Of course they're starting without me because they have a time. And so they're going to begin singing. And when I hear that first note, I'm like, well, I got to go. I'm going to go sit. I'm going to go worship. I want to enjoy the worship just like everyone else. I want to be caught up. And for me, I get the chance to do it three times on the weekend to come into the presence of God. I wonder what your issue is when you walk in the doors. Because whatever it is, if you will just obey verse 22, God will meet you. <laughs> if you will just, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And I've, I, I put this study together a couple weeks ago, and I've been meditating on it for the last couple weeks, and that, I've just been stuck there. Just so grateful. I've got this new, I mean, I've always had it, but like this new appreciation for the gathering. It's not just coming to church. I know it's how it gets delivered. You got to go to church. Look, God's given you a gift. Just enjoy it. Enjoy all that he has for you. And one of the things that he has for you is to sing. 
Come back with me in Hebrews 2 as we wind down here. Because notice, it says in verse 14, he himself likewise shared in the same, so that through death he would destroy him who had the power of death. There is victory in Jesus Christ over death. And notice in verse 15, he's also here to release you from that fear of death so that you're no longer in subject to bondage. He doesn't give help like this, verse 16. And here's the point that the author is making to the Jewish believers. He doesn't give this kind of help to angels. Remember the angels were a big deal for them because the law was delivered through the medium of angels to Moses. So angels had a high respect among the, the, among the Jewish people. He's like, look, Jesus is so perfect. He is so important. He doesn't give this kind of help to angels, but he does give this help to the seed of Abraham. And basically is a way of saying he does help you and me. Therefore, verse 17, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. Circle that word again. I know you're writing quite a bit, but in verse 17, circle that word propitiation. It, it means sacrifice, or in a real technical word, this Greek word means atoning sacrifice. It takes us back into the time of the Old Testament when they had the tabernacle in the temple. And remember, they built a small box known as the Ark of the Covenant. And above that box were two angels that were facing one another. And it was one time a year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and present the perfect sacrifice for the year and spread the blood on top of the mercy seat so that it would become the atoning sacrifice, that animal and that blood, for the people of God for the entire year. And it was something they did year after year. We'll get into more of that in Hebrews and as we get on with our study. But what the author is telling us here is, is that Jesus himself has become our mercy seat. He's the one that has made appropriation himself. He offered himself for the sins of the people. He is now the faithful high priest. Not the high priest that had to do it year after year after year, but now Jesus is the faithful propitiation or the atoning sacrifice or the true mercy seat for us through which he destroyed the fear of death and took away from us the bondage of that fear. Now, he doesn't give aid to angels like this. Angels are a different class of creation. Jesus was made to be like his brethren so that he would be a merciful high priest, that he might be able to relate to you and me, that we might be able to respond in love. And I'm sure there are some listening to me right now that still have a very fear-based attitude toward God. You're just afraid of him. You're afraid that he might come down on you because of your failures, and you, he might just wipe you out because of your mistakes and your thoughts, you know. Really, only you know what goes on in your mind. And so the way you were raised or maybe the religion that you were raised in made you fear God, not in a healthy spiritual way, but in a human way. And it could be that you're relating to God today because of the way you related to your parents. You know, your, your dad was one that really instilled fear in you. And so now you, treat, you look at God toward that. 
But, but I want you to see something before we go. Would you turn over to Psalm 103? Because there is a healthy fear of God. Without the fear of God, like none of us, that, that's the biggest issue. But this fear of God is actually a reverence and respect for God. It's not just afraid he's going to pounce on you. No, because Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He took the full wrath of God upon himself. So check this out. I'm going to read it to you first in the New King James, and I also want to read it to you in the New Living Translation because I think they did a great job with this. And sometimes we misunderstand this truth because of the way the word is translated. But notice Psalm uh, 103, and then I want you to go to verse 11, please. Psalm 103, 11. And I want, I want us to leave with this thought on our minds today. The joy of worship, the joy of gathering together, the joy of singing together, the joy of being edified. We're going to be built up. We're not going to be beat up. Notice verse 11. And this is from the New King James. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And that's where we, we have a little misunderstanding. Like we think of pity of, oh, God feels sorry for us. And he just, you know, it's, it's not that at all. And I'll show you in a minute. Verse 14, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Now listen to it from the New Living. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He's removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate. That's how they translate the word pity, tender and compassionate to his kids, to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are, and he remembers we're only dust. You know, one of the things that Jesus set us free from is a wrong concept of God. He set us free to experience the tender, compassionate love of God as we relate to him by faith. That as, just like a dad pities his kids, just like a dad is tender and compassionate toward his kiddos, God is much more so toward you today. That he loves and he cares for you. And that his heart is to set you free from even the things that are in your mind today how far he wants us away from our own asserting our rights and what we deserve when all the while the Bible reveals to us that we surrendered our rights to the one who purchased us, who gave his life for us, that we might be swallowed up in his love and his mercy and his grace. I love that. The Lord is like a dad to his kids, tender and compassionate to those who he knows just how weak we are and isn't the problem, we don't always remember how weak we are, how human we are. And yet, God is able to bring out from us what's impossible with man is possible with God. You trust him today. So, Father, we are so grateful that you're tender and compassionate toward us because we're not always tender and compassionate toward ourselves or toward one another or toward our spouse or toward our kids. But you are God. And there's just something about us that melt in the presence of kids. And even today, as I had the privilege of being with Hayden and her sister, just how can you not be tender and compassionate with kiddos? Jesus, you even use kids as an example that we should be like children in our childlike faith. 
And let us be encouraged today to worship in the congregation, whether it's through singing, whether it's through giving, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through encouragement, that we wouldn't go through life like just repetitively going through the motions religiously. Forgive us, God, for... Forgive us for our critical spirits at times, God. It maybe has nothing to do with church. Maybe our critical spirits are when we leave the building, but thank you for the gathering. Thank you for the gift of the church. Thank you for this church in particular, God, filled with men and women that love you, and we're certainly not perfect, but we sense your presence here and the presence of your Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out, Lord, comforting and encouraging us, challenging us, warning us, rebuking us of our sin, and then inviting us into relationship with you where we find rest for our souls, where we find a peace that passes all understanding, where we find a love that's incomparable, your unsurpassable love, that you're able and willing to do exceedingly abundantly all that we think or ask. May we be reminded of that today, that there's hope for our kids. Yeah, we don't have dominion over. We don't see everything put under subjection under you yet. And so God, raise your church up to be a force on the earth today. Let us change our culture and not allow the culture to change us, Lord. Let us walk forth in boldness with love and mercy and compassion toward one another. That you would have your way with us and people would know that we're your disciples by our love for one another. So build us up, Lord, as we leave here. Do business in our hearts, would you please? Let us be and rise up to another level of faithfulness in following you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.